0: Hey there, welcome to the cause and effect podcast where we talk about the human stories and lives of entrepreneurs and change makers here in Oregon. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan. I'm here with my longtime extra burly outdoorsman, close friend, Ben McKinley, who is founder of Cascade Web Development and head coach of MRT Big Mountain Ski Team. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you, Ryan. Excited to be here. All right, uh, I kind of want our audience to live a daydream with us a little bit. And if you can just take us back to, let's see, nine days ago when you and I and nine other good buddies were hanging out in a stinky, smelly yurt and then we would go on these amazing hiking up, the wallowa mountains which is like the alps of oregon and get some pretty amazing turns but like just if you could like we we have probably between the 11 guys on that trip probably a thousand videos and pictures and all that but just
1: paint a picture for us you bet well first of all i think that the uh, the smell factor is uh, somewhat overstated unless you're talking <laughs> about the outhouse which uh-huh. Absolutely terrifying. Uh, although I think it's cold enough in there that you—I uh, the, don't know. Maybe I just turn my my smelling sense off when I go out there because yeah. the other senses are overloaded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I'll say is, yeah, you're perched in a, a double-decker yurt, A.K.A. the Yurt Star Galactica, at about 7,000 feet in the at the outskirts of this range. Uh, we get, we get uh, hauled in six out of eight miles uh, behind a sled, a, snow, a snowmobile, I should say. And uh, yeah, we wake up at seven each morning. We ski from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, and we're in a range. And when you come from the land of volcanoes where it's just one cone amongst lots of small foothills, just every time you go up over a ridge, it's, you know, views of, of mountains upon mountains. We had five and days. Do you feel like the, the music comes out and it's like,
0: Hallelujah. I mean,
1: it's just like glorious up there. It is. It yeah. is. I mean, and a lot of people are like, Oh my gosh, this sounds like a ton of work, but I just get so energized with each step. And each time you get a view of another range, you know, of the, the, you know, go over a ridge and you see all these other mountains. It's just like such an en- energy surge for me. Well, we have to break it down a little
0: bit because of people, when you talk about skiing, they're thinking downhill only, right? And so sometimes I have to explain it two or three times. Like you put these funky skins on the bottom of your skis and you can literally ski up to the top of mountains and then ski down these couloirs and crazy things. So just, you know, what what were some pretty scary moments on that? Oh, you don't get scared in a lot of – but what were – some exciting moments like boot pack and things yeah. like that
1: first of all i'm i just got terrified looking down from your kitchen here your office at two floors right. below i'm horrified of heights when i when it's flat concrete below me so uh, small correction there although yeah i didn't find myself getting too terrified on this trip uh it was you know knee-deep snow or at least boot top deep fresh snow uh, climbing up these, these couloirs, which are essentially narrow slots with uh, rock walls on either side, many of which we've stared at for the last handful of years that i've been on this trip and said hey victor take me there victor's our guide love you victor um and we finally got access to it and we were amongst friends and uh, such good energy and and it was you know it was protected because the guides are there evaluating and we get to just put our faith in them and and just soak up all this you know just connecting with our natural selves in this wild environment and sharing those experiences with friends It's, it's pretty magical to your point though, you spend 98% of your time walking uphill and you know, another 2% skiing down. So it's it's a lot of walking. Uh, I think we had 10, I think I counted 10 legit runs over five days. What? Yeah,
0: I mean you felt figure, like way more than that.
1: You mean, if you think about like, turns out my birthday was in the middle of it. These guys mm-hmm. were constantly uh, wishing me happy birthday and all the warm fuzzies. But essentially we skied this run called Thriller down through to the bottom of Fly Creek and then we made our way back. Half the day out there, half the day back. Wouldn't have had it any other way. Untracked snow, um, north facing. Twelve
0: miles of uh, hiking and skiing, and like five thousand feet of vert. And I I guess the other key thing to point out is that there are three guides, and there is a danger of avalanches, which is why we're the only people in this massive range um, because we're staying in a yurt overnight and we're eight miles from any civilization. Um, but the, these are some pretty, I mean, these are the guides that run Wallawa Avalanche Center, So like, they're all about safety. Just want to put that out there. I would, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I feel comfortable with the risk that we're signing up for, you know, looking at our, our loved ones, our employees, our, our kids in the faces and saying, Hey, this makes sense to do this. Um, but you're right. It's, it's a special scenario where we're out in this beautiful range. And while we heard some radio chatter during our time out there, we didn't see another soul for five days and we didn't, the only tracks we crossed were our own. Uh, and that's a whole lot different than going to a resort. And if anyone saw that the veil lineup from earlier this season, uh, you know, a busy day at a ski resort is, is the antithesis of what we experienced. So a lot of work, um, you know, a lot, of a lot of stench, but at the end of the day, the, the magic that we all got to experience out there, I look forward to it all year long. Yeah. Okay. So
0: we, So clearly just, you know, the audience is going to realize we still have this like afterglow, um, almost like we're pregnant, but we're not. Uh, uh, So we'll try to be sharp in this interview. Um, So, Ben, let's uh, go back to when we first met. I think it was like a dozen years ago, and I don't know if it was Don Kramer who introduced us or... uh, anyway we met kind of through business circles that's what i remember do you remember anything different
1: what i remember is that i i knew of you um because uh you were quite the media darling and had earned yeah had earned quite a bit of, of media exposure also knew a lot of the folks that had worked for you uh in those early years at eroy and so it spent some time at your uh at your offices down there at uh, albert mill uh, and uh, some of the, the fun parties that you would throw in. But the first time we ever actually sat together is when, when Fritz and I were trying to launch Brand Live. And you were kind enough to share your story with us, a story you've shared with many others um, about the switchboards uh, you know, period and in, in trying to launch a software company from a services company and uh you were you were kind enough to share that with us as we were trying to embark upon this this journey and i remember you're being nice and not saying failure in any of this but yeah yeah. well i mean that's it like you showed a lot of vulnerability you didn't have to you didn't have to take that time with us and i was grateful for that so any animosity any frenemy components that may have existed there uh from projects that we may have lost to eroy or or whatever whatever uh, sense of competition that that I may have felt, uh, it was just like, no, we got way more in common than we've got difference. And I'm pretty sure I can tolerate this guy and his antics. So we gotta try this on. Uh, and I think sure. shortly thereafter, I, I took the step of inviting you on our 10-year anniversary float of the Lower Rogue River um, company, not with your wife, but excuse yeah, me. Yeah. Yes. Did I say yeah. with my wife?
0: No, but you said like 10-year anniversary, like it's Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. fair correction. So the company, which uh, boy, that was, that was something special. You brought a, <laughs> a flavor on that trip that as you pointed out, I probably wanted to, to do some of the instigating that you did. Yeah. But I, I wasn't my place, and and you did a masterful job of uh, poking and prodding and and teasing out. Your some. employees want nothing to do with me ever again. There's still some PTSD there. Yeah, I may, PTSD. I may have lost a couple employees on that trip as a result. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. They weren't clear on their exit interviews, but yeah. it was it was definitely a good. Well, time. it was
0: a float down the wild and scenic uh, run of the Rogue River, which is one of the prettiest rivers in the country, and it's in southern Oregon, where right probably an hour from where you grew up or something like that. Yeah. And so it was, it was, it was like life changing in that it was that gorgeous and connecting to the land and all that. But I did enjoy, you know, bringing some wigs on that and, you know, just, um, just really diving deep, almost like a podcast interview, but with a lot of
1: alcohol. You brought your a game. You brought your a game. (laughs) Yeah. That was a lot of fun.
0: Okay. So I don't remember in the early days ever feeling any competitiveness towards you. So what, I, what I've always noticed is all the things that we have in common. So you and I have been on the boards of a lot of professional associations, whether it be Portland Business Alliance or OEN or, you know, uh, all these like the alphabet soup of entrepreneur or technology associations and things like that and maybe some marketing ones to American marketing associations, things, things like that and greater Portland Inc down the line. But, um, what's so clearly this podcast about community, you are, you've been about community from like really wanting to leverage from a professional standpoint, how to give back. But what I've noticed in being closer and closer and friends with you over the past dozen years is that you're, your heart and maybe what your legacy is is the is this passion for coaching and the ski team in particular and you know it wasn't until about a year ago when you told me the why behind all of that but I was just gonna you know a kind of gut check with you am am I on the right track with saying like yes all these other community things are important but this ski coaching thing Like, why has it taken a hold of you so much? What, and from what I understand, it started from growing up, and and it really gives you a ton of energy.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I I guess um, I don't want to go too far down this. Cut me off where you need to, but I would say that I give I give the sport of skiing and the and the the competitive sport of ski racing a tremendous amount of credit for any success I've ever achieved. Uh, I was introduced to it at age seven after reluctantly joining my family on a you know a number of Nordic um, ski trips that they would drag us out on and hiking. I was a very unmotivated, chubby kid that. Would rather, you know, eat peanut butter and jelly from the jar and watch cartoons than go move around at all. Um, and uh, like, like a young Chris Farley, yeah, maybe? Not okay. very far off from okay. that. Uh, and so then got involved in ski racing, uh, started progressing, putting the effort in, seeing the results, building community. And it was that first thing in my life that gave me a sense of purpose and confidence. And then all of a sudden school improved dramatically Um, you know I went from not being very socially capable to having more friends and and a whole bunch of things have just blossomed from there so I give I give that sport a tremendous amount of credit Uh, you know my family was incredibly supportive of it I was essentially my dad's ticket to the ski hill it was a sport he fell in love with in college I was him when he was first introduced and loved it and then kind of it took a a side you know a bit of a an aside for him as he went through school and got his career started in the timber industry and he saw that boy, this, this unmotivated kid would rather go downhill and let gravity do the work than where'd you ski use
0: like Mount Ashland? Or something? Yeah, good okay. question.
1: So I was, uh, I was born in Astoria, lived there for five years. Dad got relocated with uh, his only employer of his career, which was Boise Cascade, uh, to Medford and, and was raised down there from age five through high school. I uh, was lucky enough to be, uh, raised at Mount Ashland. I feel like that was, you know, again, that's. That's where I feel like I most of my formative years really took hold and uh, got involved in the ski racing program. My parents got involved in the, the board um, of directors and, and really driving that and did some really cool things that exist to this day. And uh, and I just went all in and they continue to support me. Okay, so that's childhood, and
0: the, but now you're 44 and a couple days and you... You have a lot of things that can take your time, and ski racing is not unlike some of these other things that can directly benefit your business and other things. Yeah. You're um, you're super passionate about ski coaching, mm-hmm. so why choose that over maybe you know some? Uh, business stuff or family stuff and things like that
1: okay yeah so so then fast forward i i got really excited i took ski racing to a point in high school where i actually spent a winter up in idaho pursuing the this the dream of joining the u.s ski team at some point and and following a bunch of heroes uh, and you know in their footsteps, uh, found that either you know partially through a you know what appeared to be a lack of talent, as well as you know just the the overwhelming investment of, of time and money necessary to, to get to that highest level, uh, decided I was going to go back and do my senior year and and just enjoy that. And football was the pursuit. Led me to Lewis and Clark here at in Portland. I chose that school because of high academic standard. Um, one of a few, one of three uh, schools that actually showed interest in me as a football player, but its proximity to Mount Hood. So I tried. Uh, actually, my freshman year, I was a skier, a, a racer, and a coach on the 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 team at Lewis and Clark. Uh, and by my sophomore year, I'm like, I miss it too much. I got to get back in this thing. So actually, my sophomore year, I started coaching at Tigard High School. Did that for five years. Then ended up coaching a Jesuit for another six, then thirteen at the Mac, and then this last year was my first year at MRT. And I guess to get to your point, I've um, I got much more involved in community efforts after uh, going through Leadership Portland, meeting Don Kramer, getting introduced uh, to PBA, and and being becoming a part of their board. You were very nice to bring me on to to take on the the seat at Greater Portland Inc. when you were when they moved from Greenlight Greater Portland to Greater Portland Inc. I got way involved in, in civic uh, type and business type boards and, and committees. But I guess the thing with, with skiing is, A, it's, it's the thing I love the most and get the most pleasure out of. And it's a thing where I put that energy out there and I feel like I get it back tenfold. Where in a lot of the business efforts, uh, I'd put that energy out there, and I would get positive feedback, but it was nothing like the response I get from the athletes that I work with, their their families, their friends, as they progress and seeing those light bulbs go off. Um, you know, I always joke it's like I'm saving the world one affluent white kid at a time. But at the end of the day, like I have been gifted all of the the time and energy from these coaches in my life. And, and it's had such a major impact. And I I remain close with my friends that I ski raced with and skied with, as well as my coaches. And I just hope to have, you know, that kind of impact with a couple of kids throughout my lifetime. And I feel like that would be, that would be the biggest contribution that, you know, I could hope to make or one that I can really hang my hat on and say, you know, we did something there. We helped, we helped steer this kid in a good direction.
0: And when you're talking about athletes, we're talking about like 9 to 15 years old? What, what age
1: range? Yeah. So the program I coach now is, as, as you mentioned, the MRT, which is Meadows Race Team, uh, Big Mountain Team. So they, they invited me to come and bring this model of, of Big Mountain Coaching, which is largely non-competitive, focused on steeps, soft snow, natural airs. Um, you know and we're trying to move them more into the backcountry as well as expose them to big mountain competitions and currently we're working with athletes ages 9 to 18 so it's really middle school eh, for the most part yeah kind of right there's their exiting primary school into middle school the the sweet spot of the bell curve of our of our uh, athletes are in that 12 13 actually 12 to 14 age range and then we've got them a little bit younger and a little bit older
0: so Coming back to my question of the why, you you answered some of it. But I think um, what stood out to me when we were on a retreat at Black Butte uh, and we may, you know, I'm not sure if you're ready to share in this place, but but it seemed like the way that your mom supported you when you were a kid and your connection to to skiing and really the outdoors as a whole um like basically your mom was the why behind why you
1: love coaching so much yep. yeah yep all right I'm gonna try to keep it together on this because I'm not always successful with that I'm a bit of a crier it turns out but yeah my mom was a major positive impact in my life um I shared with you a photo of her jumping horses she had a, a horse that was 16 hands which in Horse parlance is huge. It's not quite a Clydesdale, but it's a very tall horse. And I remember growing up watching her jump, uh, you know, as a hunter jumper in competition, and she'd beat gals half her age, and and uh, it was just amazing the, the relationship she had with this animal. And um, you know, she I remember uh, one of the highs of my life at that point came home my eighth grade year from the the last football game of my eighth grade year, and we were undefeated and just on cloud nine. And, you know, at dinner, she had to share the, the tough news that she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. So that was a uh, reality check, to say the least. And, um, you know, but we had that time been setting the stage to, to buy a trailer and move to Bend or find housing in Bend so I could pursue ski racing there as a family. And you know all that stuff was put on hold. Uh, she fought valiantly, but she lost her battle. The end of my freshman year of high school, and um, you know it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. But again, I had this community in the ski racing world that really you know surrounded me and 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 showed me a tremendous amount of love as I tried to make sense of that time. Other interesting part in that is that I was dating my wife at that time, and uh, my two best friends grabbed her when uh, my mom's funeral was. And so she got to be there for that, which was, you know, in hindsight, a really, really special thing to, to share such a, an important moment in my life with, with the woman who ended up being my wife. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the fact that my mom, uh, through it all was incredibly supportive of me, um, to the, to the end was such a strong, you know, um, presence in my life and had really set the groundwork that you can be an athlete well into your adult years. You can make room for for healthy living and athletics as an adult. She went back to work when I was in third grade to pursue riding her horses and, and to fund that. And um, And I'll tell you, it doesn't make sense to wait until, as Warren Miller says, if you don't do it this year, you'll be one year older next year when you do it for those of you who like watching uh, ski movies. And, and so I've, I've really taken that with me, that I, I don't, I'm not guaranteed anything. And, and while sometimes I might look at some of my professional efforts and think, gosh, you're, maybe you're playing smaller ball than you need to, On the other hand, um, you know, there's this whole other side of life that I look to and and I feel like there's this opportunity to to contribute to my friends and contribute to these, you know, these young athletes and just say, hey, you know what, pursue pursue a life that will allow you to enjoy skiing. It's not a cheap sport. But on the other hand, don't don't set life aside once you get into a career track and and and, uh, you know, think that your health is always going to be there. Think that you can always find happiness in, in just work. And I think while a lot of people are lucky, some people are lucky enough to find that kind of fulfillment in their work. I think for a lot of others, that's fairly unrealistic to expect in that, uh, in that you're going to find that kind of joy and contribution in the work that you do and not to be afraid to make time and space to explore other, um, efforts and ways of supporting other people, much like you do with, with, with ELI and, you know those types of things, it's it's uh, there's we've got a lot to give, and and I've just been inspired by people like you and many others out there in the community, and certainly my mom. That, uh, yeah, do your job, do it well. But, uh, man, if you've got something that that burns brighter, don't be afraid to put energy toward that. And basically, you something has to be
0: sacrificed, and you sacrifice sleep, like you are a big get up at four in the morning to get to the mountain or, you know, fit it in so that your two daughters and wife or your company don't really feel the hit of being gone. So you do like these, really epic day outings is that accurate I mean because it has to come from somewhere right
1: yeah yeah and I think a lot of us probably remember that Facebook executive I don't know 10 years ago now that probably said if you're a, a CEO there are five priorities in life it's it's your job it's your love your family it's sleep it's your health and it's your friends pick three And so I look at that and I think, okay, I can, I can do without the sleep piece, or at least I fortunately, I, I almost always get eight hours of sleep. And if I do end up missing that eight hour window, usually it's for something fun and that's recharging me and the next night I'll, I'll recover very quickly. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too emotionally tied to getting my eight hours, but I'm, I'm pretty committed to it. And on the friend side, frankly, if you're involved in the activities I love, we're going to hang out plenty. If you're not, I'm really good at email and text and phone calls and hugs when I see you, but uh, I don't have a, a huge social life, going out and doing a lot of social activities. But that does leave room for the family and the and the career and you know and the health piece. And I think those are the the three pillars that you know I look at and go. I, can't do without those. And the other ones I can, I can, uh, kind of force in there. And I wouldn't say all day. Usually it's, I get a whole lot more done, you know, before people are in their car driving to work than, um, you know, than most, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like that fairly rigid half day warrior. That's going to go cram as much fun into that as possible and then get back and just jam like crazy on work. Cause I think it, I mean,
0: just, we haven't talked about this, but the perception of the friend group is just like, it's slightly intimidating by how much you get after it it's like how the hell can i keep up with ben like because you know if you're climbing mount hood on a day in may like you're going up at midnight right and starting the climb or i don't know i'm exaggerating a little bit but there's there's myths being created about you
1: yeah yeah i think there's a lot of that myth uh, that lore is it- doesn't necessarily serve me. Cause at the end of the day, I'd rather much rather do this with friends. And I think my friends, many of my friends, yourself included are more than capable. Um, but, but yeah, I think it, it is one of those things that I've, I've definitely committed to that. I'm, I'm doing something active and I wouldn't say I'm exercising six days a week. I'd say it's more like training. And, and with that, it is, can be isolating because sometimes if I'm training for a long distance, like ultra race, which I've done a handful of, or just long, like missions running around the volcanoes or beautiful trails around all these volcanoes. Uh, there's a, there's sort of structure around training toward that. Uh, and I have seen some friends say, dude, yeah, I, I can't hang with you anymore, which is terrible. Cause the majority of stuff I do is super low output, like just aerobic base building. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I, and I'm not one to start at midnight only because especially in the springtime when the snow goes isothermic, meaning it, it freezes and thaws each day and night skiing doesn't get good until about 10. So that allows me to sleep until at least four, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, get on the trail, jam hard, you know, but again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to break any speed records and then just enjoy the, the blissful skiing on the way down after the, the hard earned, uh, effort to get to the top. That's perfect. Well, Uh,
0: we're going to have to amend this usual section in the interview because you've covered a lot of your childhood. Uh, but a couple things you, so you you talked about mom and dad, you have a sister, right? Older or younger. Yep.
1: I've got a sister, Claire. She's 18 months older than me. Um, and, uh, speak about her a little bit. Yeah, I mean, is she
0: super outdoorsy, or like I guess I want to kind of go back to when after the chubby seven-year-old Ben, you're eight to ten years old, like the kind of stuff you were into. What you know, did you did
1: you and her play outside in Medford? Like, what was what was life like? Yep, I was still chubby, um, and I always loved being outside. Yeah, we lived, uh, you know, just just behind the elementary school, so I had that at my disposal. Um, whether it was, you know, going down and practicing our breakdancing moves, which I was never very good at on the uh, smooth concrete of our, of our hallways there or skateboarding, riding bikes. wasn't very good or interested in ball sports, um, but, but, you know, always out and about riding bikes and, and had lots of buddies in the neighborhood that we'd enjoy that stuff with. Sister and I got along, I think, like a lot of brothers and sisters. I mean, I love her dearly. She lives here in, in town. She's a, uh, a professor of nursing at University of Portland, uh, has done some really exciting work over in uh, in Rwanda, uh, helping to educate the next generation of of healthcare professionals as they've kind of come out of the the civil war over there. And um, and she also, I think, if you were to ask her, was deeply moved by my mom's passing, and and I think that's kind of what drew her to healthcare uh and in her you know giving back but yeah you know i i i feel like uh pretty normal suburban childhood at medford um you know was a great community to grow up in um you know while my dad was a timber industry guy he was he was still quite moderate and i think he did a pretty good job of explaining to us the the different views as the environmental movement was was kind of waging war on the timber industry the uh, spotted owl yep spotted city. owl yep and and uh and you know i think it provides tremendous context for me as i I live here in portland as i transitioned to lewis and clark which was much more on the the other side of the liberal very liberal And in in Medford, gosh, you played football and, um, you know, you got decent grades and everybody just wanted to make life as easy on you as possible in school. And then I found when I came to Lewis and Clark, there were a lot of professors that, you know, assumed pretty horrendous things of me uh, being a football player and uh, had to convince them. Was it really that? Terrible. Really? Terrible. Huh? Yeah, it was, it was, but, but again, it was a a really positive experience to, to be like, well, okay, you have your stereotype about who I am. I mean, I always had my hair almost as closely shorn as yours. Um, and I was another, (laughs) hard to believe, but another 60 pounds heavier, played D line. And I, I just kind of terrifying dude to a lot of folks. And, um, but again, it was so great to have that experience coming from where I did. In fact, at one point, I, uh, my senior year, I went to a speaker at the law school, which is known for its environmental law. And they had a gentleman up there with, he looked like he, the guy from Willow with his little old rush, uh, crotchety willow stick. And, and he was sitting up there and, you know, very much kind of the hippie, uh, persona. And he was the guy that at one point when I was in high school, sent a 38 special bullet to my, my family's mailbox. And he said to my father, who was in charge of a timber sale in Southern Oregon, if you go through with this timber sale, we know where you live. And
0: Dang, yeah, and so I of course,
1: here I am just, you know, a dumb high school kid like, oh, they can't hurt me. And so we have these super impressive, intimidating bodyguards show up and they said, hey, Ben, I'm going to be here out in front of your house 24 seven, just making sure you're all right. And, uh, and if anyone comes and knocks on the door, anyone, we're gonna make sure that, that they, they should be here and we're gonna, we're gonna frisk them and make sure everything's cool. So, so if your friends show up, would you please let us know? And of course I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I'll let you know. So all my friends come over one at a time, oops, <laughs> forgot to let the bodyguards know, so I go outside, and they're worried about losing, <laughs> losing their life and I'm like, uh, they're with me, sorry, forgot to let you know. So by the end, they're just like, come on, Ben, you got to let us know. This isn't fun for us either. So that was, was entertaining. But again, when I was in this, when I was at this presentation where this guy was there, it was fascinating to, to see him speak and hear his perspective. And, and the other thing that I found fascinating was that he was there alone. To speak to these students. There wasn't someone from the industry side, right? So you had one perspective presented to these students. And it was the first time that I had connected the dots, which you know a lot of, of educators fall under the, the criticism that you're just putting your views on your students. And I remember walking away and thinking that like this this professor didn't invite in a point and a counterpoint, maybe even a, a person in the middle. They basically just brought in someone that supported their views and Indoctrinated these students and sent them out in the world with this perspective. So that was very eye-opening. I actually wrote to the I wrote a piece that went to the Pioneer Log, the the student newspaper, and with my observations and just said, you know, I think Lewis and Clark you could do better. Like this is an opportunity to to provide both perspectives and send people out into the world with their ability to make their own choice versus cranking out folks that are that are essentially caring with that view. So not jaded by that experience, but it was eye-opening again, and it was just that reminder of these really important differences and how can we move through life and do our best to, to be real about the, the powers that are working against us and for us, instead of just providing one perspective. I
0: just had a flashback to college, uh, and I was, I double majored in environmental science and finance, and I had a geology teacher who's awesome, uh, very liberal, but she, I don't know if this school, she was the only one in college that did this. So I think this was she had the same notion you did, uh, which was, I'm gonna provide someone from a totally opposite perspective, a uh, creationist theory, like literal interpretation of the Bible geologist who taught uh, one, um, lecture uh on that theory throughout and i remember thinking wow like this is like i can't believe that she would let this person on at a college It, it was so it seemed like not based in any fact um but i was impressed that she prefaced this with hey you deserve to get different viewpoints and that was the only time in my formal education from kindergarten through college that that ever happened. So I I uh,
1: I think it's cool that you said spoke up on that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I appreciate it. I think, you know, we're in a, in a, you know, living in a time now where acceptance is, is much more of a priority and in valuing different perspectives. And and so I feel like I said, I just feel fortunate that I was raised in a, in a very sort of conservative Timber community then got dropped into Portland. Certainly, Portland continues to be quite progressive. And, and I feel like I've, I've got you know a perspective that is somewhat unusual. In fact, when I was in that Leadership Portland program put on by PBA, I remember at one point as people were sharing their, their views on a certain topic, I, I just raised my head and I said, how many people here are, are natives of Oregon? A class of 36, 33 were from outside of the state. And, and like yourself, a lot of these folks came here with a certain view on what portland was to them and uh and you know i think there's it's important for all of us to understand how we got where we are and not just here's how we are and we're just looking forward so uh, it's fun to it's fun to reflect back on my my journey my story in, in this geographical location and then also you know just work you know getting to know other people and understanding where they came from and, and sharing a little bit more perspective about you know what where Oregon came from where we're headed and and giving it some context cuz you know going back to Lewis and Clark that that campus was funded by largely timber money i mean w- my wife and i got married at the chapel there and you know agnes flanagan she's big timber money and i don't think anyone on campus knows that and they're you know they they continue to be extremely liberal in in uh, a lot of the viewpoints that are that are coming from there for better or worse
0: and i think you said this but you're kind of moderate would you say
1: yeah i'm i well, what i would say is certainly in the political climate we're living in um i am not a big fan of of um the the um party politics that you know these two party politics we're living in and I think it lacks humanity I think it it's uh, about winning and about power and uh, I think we can all do better just to you know find that that path that that feels more uh, balanced and um, Supportive of, of, of everyone versus you're with me or against me. So it's obviously that's a that could be one of those three hour Rogan podcasts we were talking about before the, the interview started. But um, yeah, I think there's an opportunity to just be, you know, a little bit more um, of a human being instead of being, you know, flying a flag uh, one way or another.
0: Since we covered a lot of your childhood, uh, we didn't cover the quick question of what you wanted to be when you were an eight-year-old boy when an adult asks you, what do you want to be when you grow up? So quick answer on that, and then we're going to go immediately to the origin story of how you started um, Cascade Web Development.
1: Great. Quick answer on that is uh, when I turned eight, I was three months into skiing. It was the 84 Olympics in Sarajevo and Bill Johnson had just won the downhill. And you know, a guy from Sandy, Oregon, uh, brash. And uh, I didn't know any of his backstory. I just knew this dude in pink and white striped descent downhill suit just won the Olympics. And that's what I wanted to do. Um, Now, obviously I knew that was a long shot. The other thing I wanted to do was uh, be a zookeeper. Uh, I liked, uh, killer whales and, uh, and monkeys. So, um, yeah. Now that's sad, the killer, killer
0: whales and what, you know, the whole, what was the movie that was made on that? No, like, uh, what they did in San Diego with, uh, SeaWorld with, uh, the documentary on how
1: they've, you know, like, Mm. I don't think I saw that one, although I know that, uh, my wife Christy was Blackfish or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'll, I shall check I'll, it out, it sounds yeah. like. It's it's depressing. But yeah. I'm I, glad I, I'm glad you chose the path. I didn't chose. want to be the depressing zookeeper. <laughs> no,
0: no. Thank God. Okay. Um okay, cool. So we are gonna go from all of this like just dreaming of skiing nonstop throughout the first half hour or so of this podcast to business. Business time. Give me how, because you started Cascade Web Development when you were 25?
1: No, so I, uh, I guess taking one step back from there, I was uh, I had an amazing internship in college between my junior and senior year for a, a high technology trade show company called iTech. What's really cool about this is there's, and the larger company, American Show Management, but what's really cool is there's so many folks that, that spun out of that that have done incredibly well in and, and outside of Portland. And it was, it had tremendous energy. I mean, at the end of the day, they were selling, you know, booth space to technology companies and inviting CIOs and IT professionals, lots of pocket protectors to these big convention centers. Not a lot of skiers. Not, not a lot of skiers. There were actually in the the crew that I worked with. but. But as I went through that internship, I got exposed to all aspects of the business. It certainly motivated me in my professional life to try and provide quality internships to to people over the years, and uh, definite call to action on that front. But when I got out of when I got done actually with the the high school ski racing season of coaching that next my my senior year, uh, I was invited to come back and work and and kind of transition away from party boy intern mode to like, we need to look at you as a legitimate member of our workforce going forward. And I was going to take on a full-time job upon graduation. They were getting ready to sell the company. The opportunity looked completely different than a year prior. And I said, Hey, this doesn't look great. Uh, But a person I was working under said, Hey, I'll, I'll keep teaching you how to sell. And I I know how to do this new thing called build websites. This whole thing called the internet's amazing. It's going to go somewhere. And I was like, well, what the heck? I didn't, you know, as a result of my mom passing away, my parents made good decisions and uh, financially, and I actually had a you know a couple thousand dollars in the bank instead of uh, obnoxious amounts of debt. And so when I graduated, I'm like, I know how to live on thirteen dollars a week in food, and I lived very inexpensively. And I started this partnership called Mount Hood Software, and that first uh, we made very little money, but it supported my love, my new love of climbing mountains and skiing from the tops of them. Which first time I climbed Hood was a month before I graduated in 1998, and, um, and coaching. And so we kind of grew slowly. It's like, oh, um, I don't need that much to live. Wait, I need to get an engagement ring. I guess I better sell some more websites. Oh, wait, my car's broken down. I guess I need a new car. So it literally, very organic in its development. Three and a half years in, partnerships were tough. We went our separate ways. And I was planning to take a job somewhere, but this literally happened. I notified my my previous business partner like September of or no like right around sep- uh, September 11th 2001 yeah. and uh, he didn't make it very easy on me to separate um, I was going to take a job with somebody else that I'd ski coached with but that opportunity went away as the economy went down the tubes and I basically just took all my clients from that that first partnership and started Cascade and so I just figured this is what I know I'll keep doing this thing'll we'll just you know, do this for a while. And, and that was when I met my technical director two or three months later, Stefan Brewer, who's with me to this day. And he had all the technical chops, was quite a strong designer. And we said, hey, let's, uh, you, you kind of work with the machines, I'll work with the people, and let's do something here. And so that's when when there was a true partnership in the sense that we had complementary skills and, and we just continued to invest in each other and uh, and grew the company organically since then.
0: And just to differentiate because I think if like you know my mom and dad were to look at what thesis does and what cascade web development does, it would be like, oh, you guys do the same thing. Um, so just you early on were very, specific about really focusing on the development piece and kind of more the back end than really focusing on the front-end design is that accurate
1: yeah yeah I think uh, I think that the the team that we had assembled wasn't great at re- uh, receiving a lot of critical creative feedback which is not unusual for creatives I would see in my experience and I just said hey let's not worry about that so much let's worry about creating really solid administrative tools this was pre WordPress pre Squarespace pre Drupal and and so we really worked on developing uh, this development framework from which to build websites and within a couple of years, we started outsourcing all of the design work. And I think that served us well and has served us well. Um, and so now our focus is on strategy, design, although design looks different now than it did previously with mobile responsive websites. Uh, and then the the creation of these these uh, web solutions, a lot of third party software integration and secure portals, and more more operational and, and functional elements as compared to um, you know perhaps others that are doing more type what we would consider brochureware or content creation sites, and not not, not comparing to thesis. Here, no, we just-
0: we're more campaign driven and mm-hmm. not a lot of. Um, We do some sites, but that's a tiny percentage of what we do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so we've got clients that we've had well in excess of 10 years and we continue to evolve the back end and reskin the front end when, when that makes sense. Um, and, and that's been more of our approach as compared to, you know, the campaign approach or, you know, more kind of more steak, less sizzle. Um, and, uh, and it's served us well. Meat and potatoes. Just like Southern Oregon. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Uh,
0: and then something cool happened about eight to 10 years ago with birthed out of this back end web company, uh, this like hot startup called Brand Live. Like, how was that event, or it was it started with really like live video software for like more sales professionals of products and stuff, but how? did that come out of a client or
1: yeah. 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 I, I mean, I think uh, originally essentially Nordica, which is well known for its ski boots since, you know, well over a hundred years was, was entering into the ski market as more and more brands were, were doing. And so instead of sending the, the local uh, regional rep out with pizza and beer to teach all of the the local shop folks, the sales folks, how to sell this new product, they decided, Hey, how can we broadcast this in a live video Uh, and, and then collect feedback from people watching it, their questions, and answer them in real time. Um, and so essentially you had a live video you had a chat module and then you had some slides underneath that that would allow them to walk through some Things and people responded really well to it because they got to talk to the program or the product line manager Not just the local rep and ask them really deep questions
0: real-time not like Real pre recorded. Yeah.
1: Yep, exactly and so that was the first use case and then uh, my co-founder on that Fritz Brumder had this vision of like what would it look like to include e-commerce excuse me, live video in the e-commerce process. What would, what would that look like? And he had been experimenting with a friend who had opened a, a fashion boutique in New York about wanting to buy some things and using Skype to kind of check out certain things before he purchased it. At any rate, he went through an MBA program that I helped to fund. And I just said, I'll do this in the event that, you know, your efforts can serve us both. And so Brand Live came out of that and ultimately it kind of referred back to what we did for Nordica in that the release of their ski line, and then it, it took on a life of its own. So we were able to spin that out. Uh, I think we raised around $6 million in that effort. Dang. Um, yeah. Between 2013 and 2018. And yeah. Uh, where,
0: yeah, where are you now? Cause you guys got a ton of media and you were the you know darling of the startup community and I know, OEN, you got money from o- Oaf or, or Yeah, Adventure so
1: it, f- we went into Portland Seed Fund. They were the first ones to put um, put some money behind us, and we joined that, I think it was their third class. That was phenomenal, met a lot of great people, learned a lot, um, and then come April, we, we won... Um, Angel Oregon, which was by by OEN, um, and that was so twenty five thousand with with Portland Seed Fund, and then another three hundred and ten, I believe, from OEN from Angel Oregon. Fritz did an awesome job um, in that that pitch competition and then Oregon Angel Fund, we were exposed to them through Portland Seed Fund and then again, they saw that and they're like, wait, we're paying attention. And so they put in some money. So we're able to raise about $1.6 million in that first calendar year from September to, to late August. And, and then we started to raise on top of that over time. And, you know, it's been an amazing journey. Uh, Actually at this point, I'm no longer an equity position holder with the company uh, as of the end of of January. Um, You know, it was a fascinating road, very humbling, but I think, you know, one of those examples where oftentimes co-founders aren't necessarily, you know, uh, able to, to create that kind of, of wealth that they had hoped for. Um, the good news is, is that brand live continues on the, the largest investor archivist capital, uh, decided to buy out some common shareholders like myself and, uh, and they wanted just more upside, uh, to, to really put some energy behind that. So they're, they're adjusting the the model a little bit and, and going down some exciting new paths. And, you know, I'm just sitting here cheering them on like crazy and hoping that that does turn into one of these really, you know success story the huge success stories for the portland startup scene but uh unfortunately that's not something that's gonna you know have a major impact in in my world uh, beyond this point there's lots more that i could ask on that but
0: um i think one of the things that comes to mind is something that i have been working on a lot in the past year is really um something that you did as well but delegating to one of your key leaders so at thesis uh a woman named keely york really runs the company uh internally and and i'm more the external guy and uh, i know at least early on for a long time um you started as co-founders of brand live with fritz but really uh delegated the ceo role to him and how how hard was that? And it seemed really healthy from the outside looking at it. It was, is that accurate
1: or? I would say it was it was very healthy from my perspective. I, I, I think my my appetite for, you know, for business was one that, um, you know, it's not always been uh, highly supported in this startup community in that I like the notion of a lifestyle business. I like the notion of of um, having more space in my life for family, for personal interest, for community. And um, and I was fearful through conversations with folks like yourself. And, you know, Sam Blackman was another person that was really integral in sharing his journey and, and what it took to to really achieve the kind of success that he enjoyed. Um, and obviously, you know, um, it's tragedy to have lost that guy. But I just looked at that and said, "Hey, if this is what it looks like to to run a, a startup, um, this is this is not for me." a and b i had the 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 blessing and the burden of of a you know a going concern with cascade and that wasn't something that you know i could see a clear path of moving beyond cascade so when it got to a point fritz and i had lots of conversations and we said hey this can either become a you know a product of cascade and you can sort of run this department uh we can spin this out on its own and and see if we can find some other people to to put some you know some money behind it or we can just you know ignore this opportunity and and focusing on cascade. And he had the energy and motivation to run with it. And so it it wasn't a hard decision for me. And, and it was something that he was really motivated to pursue. So yeah, I feel fortunate in that we were both fairly aligned in in our interests along those lines. It wasn't something where he had a great idea, got to a certain point and I was like, okay, step out of the way. Now this is, I'll take the lead now. It was more like, well, this is going in a very very different direction and you seem hungry for it and you've put in a lot of time and energy going to various pitches and getting this in front of as many people as possible. You've earned the right as I said, you know, many times. You've earned the right to walk the plank. Like it's not all upside. So, go get it, man. I'm I'm 100% in support of of us pursuing this, but it's going to be you in that role so um yeah i think we were we were both fortunate i i you know i've used the term before uh you know there's certainly the term you know very well entrepreneur Mm -hmm. but i viewed him more as an intrapreneur right he he had a job at cascade and and it wasn't long that he came to me and said i want to pursue an mba and instead of you know just operating under fear and saying that means you're going to go to work somewhere else we i did my best to find a way to support that and then when he put all the energy into to nurturing this opportunity to a point where it could, it could take on a life of its own. Then, you know, he, he did that. Cool. So, uh, switching gears back to cascade web
0: development. Um, you and I are friends with a lot of B Corp entrepreneurs and you're one of those. Um, and, uh, the B Corp is triple bottom line. You know, I'm, we're not a B Corp yet. Uh, although it, definitely aligns with our values here at thesis. But I, I am super curious in um, how the B Corp community has helped you as a ser- professional services company, because we have friends like Christian, Christian Ender with Hopworks Brewery, uh, where he can put that on, you know, tens of thousands of, um, you know, his beer packages of his beer. Uh, and all over the place so i just wonder from a services perspective there's a, about a half dozen folks i know who run services companies who became b corps and, and i'm just wondering what what positive have you gained from it and why did you join and you know because the b corp community is is ultimately very aligned with this podcast and it's very it's all about being a purpose driven entrepreneur so i just like tell us more about that
1: well, yeah, you bet. So I, I would just say in general, you know, I was raised in a household that celebrated life hacks, right? My dad was incredibly um, remains incredibly uh, resilient and capable. Whether it's woodworking, electricity, I mean, he's always tinkering on something and making something and and finding ways to to avoid having to to pay top dollar for the the hot new product. And I mean, he made ski racks. He made harnesses for windsurfing that he welded i mean like burrs of metal sticking out all over the place but sure let's go windsurf with this thing and have it against our skin what could go wrong <laughs> and uh and it's totally laughable i mean at one point he bought a pickup and he got a, a a camper shell that was for a short bed truck and his was a long bed And he just made like fabbed out this like cap that was on the front And we had like a six inch gap between the cab of the truck and the camper shell and it's like that'll work Let's give her, and my mom was down with it. So this is what I was exposed to at an early age, and and I think when it came to business, I also had this very, you know, instead of having the startup like let's just blow as much cash for really cool, you know, outward optics, looking in and going they must be successful. Look at all these things. It's like. How lean and mean, and how you know how much can we hack our way through this, and and ultimately kind of do the right thing, uh, and so we work out of a rail car down by the river. You know, it's not the flashiest, but it's it's a cool, fun story to tell. Um, you know, four out of seven of our workforce work from home, so they don't have to do the commute. We don't have to spend a lot more money on office space. Um, you know, there's there were a, a a virtual company in a lot of different ways and we were always operating this way so as this topic of sustainability started to pick up steam earlier in the aughts and you know early teens of 2000 you know we, we were like gosh it's almost like no one wants to talk about this unless you have this terrible footprint that you're trying to feel okay about as is, is the case with patagonia and in all these product companies that are sourcing from all over the globe and shipping all over the globe and then as the b corp movement picked up it's like it just aligns with what we've always done, so we felt like we would kind of lived uh, this ethos, and we might as well take a you know a place at that table. And it was a long it was a long process, right? As it became um, legal, or you know, it, it had gained uh, legal. Um, status in 2013 I had an employee Graham Bird who was really excited about this movement and brought it to my awareness and you know it only took I think four and a half years until we could fill out the thing and get it submitted and processed. A lot of paperwork It is but I'd be happy to share with anybody you know that at the end of the day, B Corp is all about more B Corp logos out there. So they're not interested in making it hard. They just have, they want to make sure everyone understands you didn't just pay your money to get in. And so there is a process, yet the B Lab uh, was very helpful in making sure that we were successful in moving through that. So I wouldn't, I would recommend anybody, yes, I'm a big fan of B Corp's, move through the process, but don't kill yourself and then just involve the B Corp or the B Lab community to say, help me get from whatever it is. You know, I think it's 81 points is what you need as a minimum threshold. You start, don't get to 130 like I did before submitting it, start off at like 30, submit that thing and go, how are we gonna get to 81? And they will help you get there. Um, so that was kind of, yeah, that was kind of, of our, our take was that it just feels like this is the stuff we're doing. Um, you can, you can scrub down any movement, any, any claim, um, but it felt like this, this feels right. Let's, let's go for this. And, and it's been, it's been wonderful the hard thing is how much time and energy can a a seven person organization like ours put toward owning the B Corp and flying the the B Corp flag versus just living that ethos and, and continuing to do our good work without it, you know, continuing to, to, to be about, um, praise to B Corp every step. So my last question as we finish
0: off here is there as you look back over your life um, at any kind of life moment where it gave you either a lot of independence or it was super hard and defining that way to give you grit that it's not a surprise that you're kind of in the successful seat that you're in now. I mean, just by being on this podcast, clearly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a big
1: win. That's a big win. Yeah, I will say I've listened to all of them and, uh, and I've really enjoyed them, Ryan. So it's yeah. it's fun sitting I with know. you and it's amazing how quick these these things do go. So I know it's it's really cool to see you doing the work you're doing around this and, and shining a light on folks. So uh, keep up the good work, my friend. Thank you. And I just, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want to be morbid, but I think, you know, watching my mom suffer the way that she did. Um, you know, one of her big goals in life as a, as a hunter jumper was to go and do a fox hunt in scotland that's where they get on their horses and they've got their foxes and they they release the um wait they re- they've got their hounds and they release the fox and chase it down and she always talked about it and just she had blankets with these things on i still have one up at, uh, up at the mountain at our place and and plates with it and all and She just this was like like the dream of helicopter skiing for many of our friends mm-hmm. and she never got to do it and so that sticks with me is that she she did everything right. She lived right. She lived clean, and took care of people, and uh, and didn't get to realize that. So I think for me, um, what I took with me is that life is short. Um, you know, and my dad had always said, you know, you look back on any given year, you just make sure you put in the hard work and you commit to your 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 community and your family, but have some fun along the way. And maybe I've had a little too much fun along the way. Some might uh, criticize me or assume too much risk, but I just felt like. When it came to business, there's a lot of great leaders out there. Um, but why couldn't I be a leader? And if I couldn't be a great leader, why couldn't I find a mentor to help me do that? And and why can't I, you know, get up at four and and do something really fun for me and get back to the office at nine or ten when everybody else is is rolling in and and make the most of it, uh, you know, and 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 just kind of live a, a less, you know, kind of standard approach. Um, so I, I, just, you know, I just think the world of her and, and, I uh, feel like, you know, her, uh, the 14 years that she was with me were, um, I'm grateful for, and, and I've tried to live in a way such that, you know, if at any given point, uh, my number comes up that I can look back on it and be like, great. I didn't, I didn't leave a bunch for, you know, for the future. Cause there's, there's no guarantees. Yeah. And our
0: mutual friend Lou shared with both of us, um, reframing his perspective on losing his mom at an early age at four or five years old and that is that when that happened he was super uh, angry might not be the right word but like that she couldn't experience all these things that um all these um, amazing milestones and see him. Um, but really reframed it to, as you have done of like really celebrating her life and, um, and this, a lot of this podcast is kind of a, a tribute to that of just like what she has done, um, versus what she couldn't, you know, experience cause she left earlier than she should have. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No question. I, I think about my mom was a crazy animal lover and, and all the dogs we've owned that she never got to cuddle with and obviously my kids and college graduation and weddings and all those things are are uh, unfortunate she wasn't there but yeah i guess i've just tried very intentionally to say what what impact did she have and and how does that leg- legacy live on so doing my best to be grateful in that and and uh, and pay it forward every time i get a chance that's awesome well thank you thank you ben for being on the show it was a blast absolutely thank you ryan Keep cheers
0: peace Reflection time. Ah, this is the time at the end of the podcast uh, where I get a 24 hours to reflect on the podcast interview I do with a leader in the community here in Oregon. And actually, the guy who gave me that idea was Ben McKinley himself. He is my only friend who has given me constructive feedback all along the way on how to improve little pieces of the podcast interview, the intro and outro music, the advice of, hey, this, this podcast ended too abruptly, like, could you do a recap? Uh, so I'll do that now. What I liked about this interview is really just capturing some visual moments and and celebrating, uh, recent past, uh, memories. And one of those in starting the podcast was just a week prior to the interview. Um, Ben and I were in the Wallawa mountains, which is kind of this spiritual Mecca for those of us who are super into the outdoors and, uh, it really highlights what this state has to offer. Uh, so many times, uh, Portlanders will go to Central Oregon, they'll go to Mount Hood, and those are incredible places, but the Wallawa Mountains in a yurt, not seeing another soul except for your 11 buddies and three amazing guides um, in just just pristine powder and snow um, is is kind of like gets you back to your your primal um need to connect to the land and things like that. So, uh really enjoyed doing that uh living back those memories and I've had a bunch of the past 5 or 6 years uh with Ben in particular. Uh we didn't even get a chance to go over some some once in a lifetime uh, stories of going out at 10 o'clock at night and and under the stars uh, ski like two feet of powder and, again, hoot and holler with no one else except your buddies around. Um, So that really turned into um, a lot of commonality that Ben and I have in the business community here. But the thing that sticks out for Ben that is unique is that he is so – passionate about being a skier and a ski coach not just for recreational purposes which most of my ski buddies and and friends uh have that kind of why behind why they do it is a connection to the outdoors it's uh you know it is adrenaline producing and and it's a it's a really fun sport but really getting to the why behind why ben does it and his connection to his mother and losing her at 14 years old and how supportive she was of his path towards trying to become um, a U.S. Olympic skier um, and really supporting and being a role model for her competing even as an adult. Um, in uh, For her, it was horseback riding. Um, and, you know, it was just kind of a beautiful tribute to uh, family and to his mother. And, uh, and that led into a lot of conversation of, of how, um, how his legacy, how Ben's legacy is really likely going to be um, mentoring and coaching nine to 18-year-olds uh, in the outdoors and specifically in ski racing, which Ben is gifted at. And um, so it's not just about... Ben getting his, which uh, he definitely gets after it when we're on um, these guide trips, Um, but also giving back. Um, And I liked his comment of uh, changing one privileged white kid's life at a time, but uh, obviously it's a lot more than that. And there's a bigger scope uh, in play for Ben as he uh, leans into a lot of the Work that we're doing with emerging leaders and things like that. Um, also, what stood out to me is uh, some stories that I hadn't really heard before of just the dynamic with being a multi generational, true Oregonian. Um, ben had some experiences coming from Southern Oregon, his dad being in the logging industry and the timber industry and go been going to a uh a college class and having his professor be the one who literally mailed his dad a bullet and said i know where you live um and that was in his high school years where he then uh, the family had a bodyguard and all kinds of things so it's kind of full circle how uh liberal portland meets pretty much the rest of the state but definitely southern oregon is uh quite a bit more conservative and and ben is kind of right in the crossroads of uh being right in the middle between a conservative um community that he grew up in and then now being so embedded in portland uh which i thought was was fascinating The last thing I'd say in my recap about Ben is what I didn't hear. And that is all of the expressions that you hear uh, on the ski hill of overstoke, of watch out for the chicken heads, of um, all of the lingo, the rad, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of more lingo as well as Ben somehow has like these 80 year old expressions of like, oh, I was just tickled pink on that run, just totally tickled. Um, So I didn't hear any of that. He uh, he must have uh, brushed up on his homework to be a little bit polished in that regard. Uh, And then I want to remind you as the listener to please rate this uh, podcast. Uh, We're. Still, um, you know, kind of building our base here and that definitely helps to just get some feedback. And if you could also be inspired by Ben to give me real feedback of how to improve uh, this podcast episode, whether you want to do that on commenting on social media where you see it. Also, there's going to be a ton of amazing photos and videos on the medium.com blog post that I do with a text transcript with this. So definitely check that out. It is a great, great compliment to the audio file. Uh, So with that, cheers.